Coming up on this week's show, we say goodbye and good riddance to Internet Explorer. An amazing new collection for Atari fans is coming. And we get the inside story on the retro beat-em-up revival with Bitmap Bureau. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every week with our amazing friends at Bitmap Books. Now, obviously, this week we're talking a lot about side-scrolling beat-em-ups. One of their books you need to check out. It's new from them. Go Straight, the ultimate guide to side-scrolling beat-em-ups. This fascinating record of the genre's history is going to be right up your street of rage. You can check it out on the rest of their retro gaming books at bitmapbooks.com. And with our lovely friends at PCBWay. Now, if you're working on an electronics project at the moment, they offer a fully featured custom PCB prototype service with low-cost, fast turnaround quality boards. And they offer services like 3D printing and injection molding, and they're big supporters of the retro community. So get an instant quote for your project right now at PCBWay.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 332, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to this week's podcast, where of course every Friday we take you on a journey inside the world of retro video games bringing you up to speed on all the big stories that you need to know about from the last week and we're joined by a veteran of the video games industry on each week's show and hopefully um, I'm not sounding too sleepy because um, I did have a bit of a crazy weekend Friday night stayed up till around three o'clock in the morning playing at the new Turtles game Shredder's Revenge and then Saturday night I think I went to bed around half past three in the morning because I was playing another new retro beat-em-up game that we're going to be talking about this week and that of course is Final Vendetta. I think a lot of people have been doing that this week haven't they? You're practically a teenager again Dan. No, it's amazing. <laughs> living, living too hard there Dan but yeah no pretty much exactly the same as what I did all weekend as well and all this all, all this week was not gonna lie they're quite hard games um, mm. Not not quite finished them just yet, which I'm ashamed to say with me being a, a beat-em-up connoisseur. But um, yeah, man, it was really, really great to have the Final Vendetta guys on today. And um, it was a little bit of a catch-up, actually, because we've had Mike on before, haven't we? Yeah, so this is uh, Mike, who's the um, design director of Bitmap Bureau now. Uh, we did have Mike on. Um, and Matt, I think this was, I, I looked and I thought it was about two years ago. Turns out it was January 2018. Wow. And we had Mike on, so uh, yeah, n- nearly half a decade and, ago And now. you know, they were working on like total different titles before, but they've grown so much. Like, I've not played Final Vendetta, but I've seen it absolutely everywhere. Like, my Twitter had screenshots of it, you know, YouTube, it was just reviews of it. It, it looks like it's really, really popular. Well, they um, last time we had Mike on, it was um, when they just launched their Kickstarter for a game called um, Xenocrisis that was um, on the Mega Drive mm. at the time. And obviously, it's on a lot of different platforms now. Um, since then, they've um, released a, a Gauntlet-inspired game called Battle Axe. Again, it's, that's a game they released on the Neo Geo. So they're really into doing not only games that you can play, kind of retro-inspired games on modern platforms, but they're like putting them out on the original hardware. Mm. So they've done games for Mega Drive, Dreamcast, Neo Geo now as well. So, you know, they're really doing a lot. And they're working with like you know, a lot of people from the original games industry. Because I remember that Xeno Crisis one. They were working with Hank Nyborg, who did the graphics and the original drawings and some beautiful stuff. Yeah, uh, so really good to have them kind of doing the old school titles, but like having the old school people involved as well. 
So yeah, I mean, we're going to be talking to Mike and also um, Lee Mintram, who's um, he's a very accomplished video games musician. He's done stuff um, like on the, the old school FIFA games. He had a track on that Jet Set Radio as well. I know that soundtrack is right up your street, Ravi. And also he did, um, everyone remembers, you know, if you talk about Apple advertising, you remember the, the iPod advert with the dancing white silhouettes? Oh yeah. yeah, that was iconic, wasn't it? And that was kind of his big breakthrough. He actually did the soundtrack for that. Oh, wow. So um, we've got some great stories from Lee about, you know, them uh, flying him out to um, Apple's HQ. And um, apparently Steve Jobs actually chose that song himself, you know, to have on the soundtrack. Um, and kind of how he got involved in this project too, because some really interesting stories. But as I said, I mean, the fact that this new game, Final Vendetta, which for people that haven't played it, Joe and I, like I said, we spent a lot of time in it over the last few days. How would you describe it, Joe? It's kind of, kind of a love letter to those it's, 90s Beatles. It's a it? real love letter to it's it's a cross between like Streets of Rage 2 and 3 and Final Fight. You know, that's that's kind of what they were going for and Mike says, you know, that's what we they were going for as well and I've I've watched some really great reviews on it, you know, GameSack who we've had on before, they did a review of it. And I can't remember exactly what he called it, but he said he, they may as well just called it like Final Vendetta of Rage or something like that, <laughs> um, which I thought was really good. But it's a real love letter. But then it's got that really nice Neo Geo style graphics, which they purposely went for. Um, and it just looks like a really nice 32-bit 2D game. Um, but I must admit, it is it is brutally hard, you know, and we, we spoke about that as well on, on the show, but they kind of purposely did that because of they wanted it to have that old school retro hardness to it, you know, and me and you, we've, we've not been doing too good on it. Uh, I think I got to the fourth boss. I think <laughs> you, you did said, better than me, I think. Yeah. yeah, you got to the second level on it, but, you know, it, it's all been done very purposefully and it's to kind of learn the game because it's a little bit different. You can roll in it, you can dash up and down, you can block, you know, and a lot of these kind of retro games, retro beat-em-ups have those elements, but I've not really played one where it does all of those elements at once, you know, and it was just really great time kind of talking about like how there's been a real revival of beating up games, you know, in the last couple of years with Streets of Rage 4 and obviously Shredder's Revenge and stuff like that. So I was right in my element. I really loved it. One thing that stood out for me was the uh, soundtrack when I saw the trailers. It was absolutely Mm. banging. And like, I've got the Streets of Rage soundtrack here on vinyl. Like, I'd love to get this one. (laughs) Yeah, well, it, 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 it sounds on, awesome. It is coming on vinyl, and uh, Lee was saying, I don't want to spoil it too much, but you know, he did about forty tracks for it, you know, and I think thirty of them made it onto the game in the end, which is just really awesome, you know. And we hear all about like how he started out on the Amiga and his love for the uh, the Atari ST, or should I say, not his love for the Atari ST? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because Michael, we've got on is a big Atari ST fan, so there's a little bit of uh, you know hostility at the start, <laughs> but we get over that pretty quickly. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is incredible. And actually, you now talking to the soundtrack again, that was just such a big standout on games like Streets of Rage, wasn't it? it was Those so early nineties soundtrack. Oh, yeah, exactly. And Utah Saints, who we've had on the show before, actually involved in the soundtrack as well with Lee. So it's such, like you said, if you love those games. And it is, it's very difficult. But I think a lot of modern games, you know, probably hold your hand a bit too much these days. So in a way, it was quite refreshing to see a game that completely whipped my ass and didn't hold my hand too well, much while I was playing Here's it. a question. Was there any Kate Bush involved uh, with the Utah Saints around, you know? There's an idea. Yeah, she's very on trend again now, isn't she, Kate Bush? Um, so if you're, in, you know, you're loving the retro beat-em-up revival and Final Vendetta, that new game that just dropped this week um, on all the major platforms and uh, is coming to the Neo Geo very soon as well. So we'll hear more about that with our special guests, Mike and Lee from Bitmap Bureau, are coming up on the show in around 25 minutes from now. Now, lots of other stories to get into this week. Um, first of all, 
this is never something that we like to see, you know. A, a game that's come back from the past and been brought to modern systems, but unfortunately has got a game-breaking bug. And this seems to be something that's happening quite regularly these days. It's, it's pretty mad having games released that kind of break and just relying on that update uh, to kind of get fired down the line and, and fix a game. You know, I always think about these people... Maybe there's someone out there who isn't connected online and buys the game and could never get these updates and get the broken version. Well, the game in um, question is uh, Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic 2, which um, I don't know, Joe, have you played Knights of the Old Republic? It was a, a pretty decent game. I'm ashamed to say I haven't played the Knights of the Old Republic games, and I know there's a, l- a lot of hype about these games, and you know they're, they're meant to be like quintessential star wars games i i've played them very briefly on land multiplayer you know at like play expo yeah but i couldn't tell on like deathmatch but i couldn't tell you which one i was playing but i know that those must check out like star wars games but there but- was a great set of star wars games that came out and you know they were for the pc as well and they mm-hmm. all ran on this engine and the way that it ran was like it was kind of rpg but also you know you'd be behind the character i think is it fourth person or Third person. View, Third yeah. person, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, it wouldn't be like an FPS, but you'd be kind of going around these environments and it was all based on the same engine and there was a really great series that came out and it was around 2004, came out on the Xbox and the PC. Well, it's been released on the Switch and uh, Aspire, the company that's released it, uh, have found out that on this level, um, which is uh, where the Basilisk crash cutscene happens, uh on landing on uh, Onderon. I hope I've said that correctly. (laughs) Onderon, yeah. Yeah, um, there's basically a crash in the Switch version. And at the moment, this is like June the 20th that they posted this, uh, they're saying that they haven't actually got a fix for it. Um, So they're waiting to, you know, fix it and then release it later on. But uh, if you've got that title, you can probably only make it up to that section. That blows my mind that that can even get through testing, because surely you're going to get some testers to play the game all the way through before you release it, you'd think. You'd think, wouldn't you? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> Apparently not, yeah, yeah, which is just insane. And this is like a Switch release, and it's like, you know, it's hmm. Star Wars. It's it's quite a big brand. It's not, um, you know, your kind of PD game or anything like that. So uh, pretty amazing to see, and... Uh, I, I, it's just amazing that the public have found this bug rather than someone internally, like you say. I think these days, I mean, I'm, I'm not accusing them of doing it with this game, but a lot of the time I think they just kind of shove a game out there, maybe with minimal testing and be like, oh, if there's any problems arise, we can just patch it, like you said. But then, I mean, there are going to be people that haven't got internet connectivity while they're playing it. I mean, I, I just come back from a couple of weeks on holiday in Turkey and, yeah, that was a four and a half hour flight. And I was playing my Switch on the plane all the way there and all the way back. So, I mean, that was like nine hours when I wasn't online. And if I was playing this game and I got to that point, then that's going to ruin your experience, isn't it? Yeah, like we've seen it and it, and it damages reputations of releases. Mm. Like, I don't think it's a, a majorly like, you know, wise thing to do for a company. Just spend a little bit more on testers because like, you know, GTA, the remastered one, that came yeah. out and it was all over the news that it was broken. Obviously, they've fixed it, but, um, you know... It, you just avoid that whole whole kind of nonsense and people then it kind of stains the reputation of the release a bit, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think it's hard to recover from that, isn't it, once those bad reviews are out there. Yeah, I guess I guess it's like the kind of 
crunch culture and just like, you know, get it out there and probably management pushing it where, yeah, devs have maybe said, we need a bit more testing. <laughs> no, release it. We'll just update it, you know. Well, I must admit, I, I didn't play the original game, but I'm looking at some, um, there's an article on IGN that actually embeds a uh, side-by-side comparison with the original Xbox and the Switch. Graphics are a little bit sharper, but actually bizarrely, like the Xbox in some places seems to run at a smoother frame rate as well and actually is a bit ahead of the the Switch version of the game, which um, seems to me like, you know, 20 years later, that's probably not something that should happen. Yeah, you'd think they'd be going for like a remaster or they'd be going for, you know, like a a bit of an improvement on the Switch. But yeah, that's, that's pretty odd. Yeah, but they have said, I mean, you know, like you mentioned, Ravi, that they've identified that there is a problem with it and they're saying they, they are going to do a patch. Um, unfortunately, at the time of recording, it isn't available yet. But if you have got that game and you've uh, you come up against that, hopefully Aspire are going to get that problem sorted out for you soon. Look out for an update coming down. Now, when we talk about Atari <laughs> over the last couple of years, generally it's because they've done something a little bit insane, you could say, you know, whether it's starting their own cryptocurrency or a uh, building a hotel chain, you know, they've been up to quite a bit of interesting things over the last few years. Um, and then, of course, we had the new Atari console, um, which I've had in my cupboard for about a year. I was, was going to say, it's not got pride of place in your uh, gaming collection, has it? It's his main console. Uh, I think, yeah, I think I've, I've played it once, I think. Well, I actually did think of bringing it in my, my studio room I've got here and using it as a PC, because actually you can run, you know, like Windows yeah. 11 on there and stuff. The only thing is it's got a really loud annoying fan that ramps up every time you move your mouse so um even for that it's not the the best hardware for you know any use case where you don't want a fan blaring in your face um but this actually looks like atari could be doing something that looks pretty decent now this is something that's coming out this summer a collection of mini games called atari mania and a lot of people are kind of comparing this to a uh, a warioware mashup of early atari games yeah i i on the wii we have like uh, on the Wii U as well, like there's Wii Party and stuff, but there's also like the WarioWare where you're playing different levels of different games. I'm sure there's another one as well, but and you play like Nintendo Classics, and but it's like tiny sections of it. So it'll be like you've got to quickly just complete this section of Donkey Kong and then you get chucked onto another game and stuff. And I think it's quite a good concept actually, like breaking up the old traditional game. So h- how are they doing it here? Well, this is going to be a release for the uh, the PC initially. Um, it's going to be a collection. Oh, is it coming out? Yeah. <laughs> is it, is it, it actually coming out of the VCS? It says it. You know, if you go on their official Why? page, wow. it says uh, coming soon to Steam and Atari VCS. There you go. Dust it off. Oh, dust you. it off, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason to buy a VCS. So, um, yeah, this is Atari Mania, a collection the promising of more than 150 mini games that's coming out. And it's going to be, like you said, just small bits of games. I mean, there is a uh, an announcement trailer that shows you a bit of the footage. It's only about a minute long, but you can see stuff in there like there's um, Yars Revenge, a little bit of Breakout in there as well, Adventure, all kind of in, you know, modern, updated, pixelated retro graphics style. Yeah, it looks very um, indie gamey, doesn't it? It's like indie game yeah. kind of chunky pixel versions of the games. Yeah, it's kind of a, you know, a mashup of all those classic games as well. I mean, they mentioned here in the article on Polygon that, you know, in one section of it, it looks like you use a uh, a Pong paddle to fight off the bugs from Centipede. Oh, nice. So, yeah, it's kind of, you know, mashing up all of these classic games, uh, more than 150 of them, uh, micro games are calling them actually, in this collection. So I think it is, it's an interesting way 
to kind of repurpose and present these games again for for a different audience. Because I mean, we've, we've talked about it a lot. I mean, it does get to a stage where even someone like me who, you know, the Atari VCS, I've got one, but I'm not really that into its catalogue. It hasn't really got much nostalgia for me. And it was a bit before my time. And the games are very simplistic these days. But I think it is it is something that I've, even though I'm not a huge fan of those games, I've got them on so many different systems, whether it be, you know, compilations that I've just acquired over the years. And it gets to a stage where you just, you don't want to buy the same thing over and over again. So I think having something like this, it kind of presents it in a new format is definitely a good thing. And it's quite innovative because, uh, so like last week we were talking about this kind of, you're a caretaker of an arcade and it's haunted and you've kind of got to keep going. This one, you're a, a caretaker of the Atari vault and um, it's like a, a storehouse of all the classic games and then one night a dead pixel appears and uh, soon enough uh, all heck breaks loose. So um, <laughs> I think this job of being a caretaker of an arcade or something, it's a pretty good job, man. If there's any going, I'd love to it. Have sounds it. terrifying. It sounds exciting, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think they're missing a trick with it. You know, maybe it, it will do eventually, but I think they're missing a trick with it not coming to the Switch. Like it seems perfect mm. for the Switch. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, but you know, they're opting for the VCS instead, <laughs> keeping it in house. And I'm looking, I'm looking at the comments on um, on the video on Atari's official YouTube channel, and they are saying mm-hmm. they're hoping that they're going to get this out on PS5 and Switch as well. So it could be something that comes later down the line, by the looks of it. So is this going to be know. the VCS's killer app then? I guess, I guess, uh, it's not, not if it's coming out on the Switch. Yeah, it's not exclusive. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah, so it's uh, you know it is cool to see Atari finally doing something that I think you know people are interested in. It's something different that, and looking at the comments, people seem to be quite hyped for it as well. So it's uh, yeah, nice to see them doing something that you know we would expect Atari to do, not setting up hotels. So um, if you want to check out the trailer, I'll link it up in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, of course, it does seem like this um, retro FPS revival continues, and also the trend of finding prototype games that never were. For the Game Boy Advance. I think we've mentioned one like what every show now for the last, what, three or four weeks? Yeah. But this one is an unreleased Quake prototype that's been discovered for the GBA. It looks very cool. I mean, it comes from Forest of Illusion, uh, who I think we mention every week at the moment as well. You know, they're finding all these games and restoring them and, you know, dumping them and uploading them and stuff like that. But I think it looks really cool. So, yeah, Quake on the Game Boy Advance, um, which was developed right at the back end of the Game Boy Advance, apparently, but obviously never came out. But it's by Randy Linden. Yeah, um, we've had him on the show. We've had him on, haven't we? Uh, obviously, the creator of Bleem, and then also did the port, the SNES port of Doom as well. So I guess something, this is quite familiar territory for him because obviously the Game Boy Advance, I mean, I'm obviously no programmer or anything like that, but it was always kind of like seen as like a portable SNES. So I guess, and obviously Quake and Doom aren't a million miles away from each other. So I guess it kind of made sense for them to try and put Quake on on the Game Boy Advance. Um, but interestingly, this version of it uh, that they've you know they've got a hold of it doesn't actually have any of the assets from Quake. He completely built it from the ground up. Apparently, um, I'm not obviously we don't know what the story is. It just it never came out. But it's pretty yeah. impressive that it's, it's on the GBA. So um, MVG has done a really good video of it that I oh, checked brilliant. out. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, Randy's like an insane programmer. He's yeah. like the kind of guy that does the impossible. You know, he did Bleem, which was the uh, emulator for um, Dreamcast, Dreamcast yeah. which did PlayStation stuff. So the way that this works is, um, you know, Quake, the source code's been kind of released the same as Doom. And uh, 
lots of people modify it and stuff and it it's like doom it's like a virus it goes onto loads of systems yeah um, well the way that it works is um it's been done in a assembly code mm. assembler and uh very much like the tomb raider port that we saw it stores ram in all the different places mm. uh, very intelligently um all the different places on the Game Boy Advance, usually like external RAM, virtual RAM, stuff like that. And uh, he's worked out a way of storing all the 3D processing in this RAM and like the 3D uh, tables. So it basically runs kind of well on the, on the Game Boy, like the best you I can get I think it looks really it. nice. Yeah. yeah watching the video, there's a video of it that Limbed that's on Nintendo Life. The frame rate looks really smooth. Yeah. mind-blowingly so for the Game Boy Advance. Yeah, definitely. And you think how how kind of, uh, you know, small and, like, limited it was. And, uh, yeah, it's 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 a good achievement. Like, I'd expect to see... I'd be impressed with seeing Doom running, but Quake is like, my God. Doom did come out on the GBA, I must say. Yeah, was it a good port? I have not played it since I was about 12 because I had it, but I thought it was a good port at the time. So don't take my word for it, but... um. I don't remember it being as smooth as this, this Quake port. This is running better than some of the Amiga Quake ports that I've seen back in the days. Yeah, it's it's really nice. And uh, I'm just amazed that, you know, this kind of having 3D game, having Tomb Raider, having like Quake on there, it's uh, pretty impressive for such a small system. And you think, I mean, when I saw Doom running on the Super Nintendo, and that to me was pushing the boundaries of that hardware. And Quake, I mean, you know, you kind of mentioned that it's, you know, not too dissimilar to Doom, uh, Joe, but I think I remember a lot of people that would be kind of the, the instigator for them to move mm. from a 486 PC to a Pentium. Yeah. Because they needed that extra grunt. And then when those, you know, initial 3D graphics cards or the 3D accelerators came along, you know, stuff like the Voodoo cards and stuff, that would be a reason that people would go out and they'd spend like, you know, two or 300, 400 pounds on an accelerator board just to play Quake. Because it was, I mean, I, I played the original quite recently on the Pentium one, and you've got stuff in there like even the fact that you can look up and you can see the sky kind of rolling. Yeah, by and there's and, like you know. slopes, and there's like yeah. um, uh, everything's textured. You know, there's not a, a section that's missing it, and it's got like dynamic lighting and particles and stuff like that. It's uh, it's very impressive. Yeah, yes. I mean, it might not look look like much today, but I think coming from those huge jumps between Wolfenstein 3D, Doom, and Quake. They felt like different generations, really, didn't they? So the fact that it is running at all, I mean, I know this is not really a port of Quake. It's more like a, a reinterpretation of it. But even in this demo, you know, you can watch like three minutes of footage on YouTube or I'll, I'll embed MVG's link as well um, if you want to read a, a, hear a bit more about it. But, yeah, you've got all those slopes in there and, you know, jumping and stuff like that, which um, was very difficult to do. I think some, sometimes we forget just kind of what technical achievements they were back then. So the, the fact that this runs even at all on a Game Boy Advance, which, as you said, you know, in terms of hardware, not a million miles from a Super Nintendo, I think it's just jaw-dropping. Yeah, and, like, I think every piece of work that I've seen from Randy is, like, just mind-bending. <laughs> like, this just adds to it, you know. Yeah, so if you want to check out that video, I'll put MVG's video and also the uh, the little three-minute gameplay footage and also the download link. If you've got an EverDrive for your Game Boy Advance, you can play it actually from Forest of Illusions website. You'll find all that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, of course, it is the final weekend of June 
coming up, which uh, <laughs> blows my mind. This month's gone so quickly. But it is our favourite weekend of the month because something big coming up on Sunday evening. Joe, you know what weekend it is? There's a couple of things coming up. It is the patrons hangout. There you go. You can record that as well. You can use it like you do the, uh, <laughs> the Hall of Fame. But like the jingle, is it? Yeah, it's the, uh, the patrons hangout this Sunday. Um, which will be 8 or 10, won't it? Where we'll be talking all things retro, talking all things uh, what we've bought in the last month as well. But as well as that, we're also going to be doing our next episode of the, the Retro Hour After Hours, aren't we? Where I think we're going to be covering the retro years 1989 we're going to do. Wow. Um, just, 89, what a year. I know, what a year. It was a year, you know, Handsome Joe was born. So, uh you know, it was the month in year he was born. You know, there you go. Uh, <laughs> so that's why. So modest as well. So yeah, I know. So humble. <laughs> so that's why we're going to be covering that. Um, but obviously, the reason we do all these things um, is really to keep the show independent and keep the running of the show. And obviously, to kind of say thank you for all the patrons who allow that to kind of happen, isn't it? That's the thing, because this podcast, I mean, it is, we haven't got any big company behind us. You know, we're an amateur, really. It's three guys in our house who love video games. They just want to come and talk and chat to people that, you know, we grew up playing these people's games. And, you know, to us, it's just a passion project, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. To try and find out more. And and getting guests every single week. And, you know, it, it does take up time and it really helps having the patron, you know, just to just to kind of take that pressure off and also help us get equipment, like pay for the website as well. And uh, yeah, just you guys also, you're great supports for the podcast and uh, you even like provide news for us in the uh, Discord as well, which is fantastic and uh, get involved with the show. Yeah, so we love our community. And if you'd like to join it as well, I mean, you know, for a couple of pounds, a couple of euros, a couple of dollars a month, that's all it takes. Um, you can join our community as well. Support the show. Think of it as a little tip, Joe, if you enjoy what we do. And, of course, for backing us on Patreon, you will find your place in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming, and that is... Hall of Fame! The Retro Hour Hall of Fame. And a big thank you to our latest supporters. That is Joe Douglas. Ricky Sickenger. And Aidan Holmes. Who all backed us on Patreon. We massively appreciate your support. And if you'd like to find your place in the Hall of Fame and back us on Patreon, you'll find all the details at theretrohour.com. Now, it has been a week when um, this story's been all over the place. It's always interesting when you see retro technology stories being, you know, reported on the BBC and on ITV News as well. And uh, even your mum talking about it, that she's read it in a, in a magazine. And that is the Internet Explorer has finally been killed off this week. Yes. And um, a lot of people have been marking the end of Internet Explorer in various ways. God, I'm, I'm so happy that it's finished. <laughs> For so many years, Microsoft tried to... Well, let's, let's talk about the history for a bit. Um, so Internet Explorer was the first kind of browser that was added to an operating system and that caused a massive monopoly court case uh, with Microsoft years ago because Netscape Navigator was out, uh, Mosaic was out as well and um, they basically killed the whole kind of model. Like Netscape Navigator was paid for as well um, but by adding Internet Explorer in with the operating system Windows it ended up becoming a monopoly because you know that was the default. People would just use that straight away. And it it did kill the, the model of Netscape Navigator, which eventually turned into Mozilla. And then that became Firefox. But Internet Explorer, 
I used it. It helped me get into the internet. It Everybody used it. You had to use it. You were forced to by standard. But it was so weird and custom that you had to... I was a web coder and you had to create specific rules for Internet Explorer so that it would display in that way. And uh, yeah, it, it was interesting. It was that whole kind of Windows and MSM network and all becoming part of it, you know, and uh, Internet Explorer for years was the default. And then it ended up kind of uh, trying to be hidden by Microsoft. So even if you got the latest operating system, you'd have Edge and you'd have Internet Explorer like hidden somewhere in the system as well. And they they always tried to kind of change it because it got such a bad reputation over time. It's interesting because I was a Netscape user um, and iBrowse on the Amiga, like the original two web browsers that I used. Um, but then, like you said, you know, when IE kind of got bundled, um, it, it kind of felt like yeah, that they did stuff like, you know, their own kind of HTML standards and JavaScript, I think, they put their own stuff in there. And there was ActiveX, all of those technologies as well. But I remember Netscape really dropping the ball when I think it was, you know, Netscape 4 came out. And then it went from being like quite a a minimal lightweight browser to, you remember that, the communicator suite? Yes, yeah. <laughs> when it tried to do everything, didn't it? And I remember then thinking when that came out, my God, this is bloatware. And actually I did use Internet Explorer for a while. Well, you, you had to because stuff like Shockwave was, you know, worked, uh, a lot of the web applets, uh, a lot of JavaScript, um, you know, uh, Internet Explorer supported a lot of things. A lot of things that actually now aren't much of a standard. Like, uh, do you remember Silverlight as well? I think that was one at one point. Um, there were so many kind of external things that worked well with it. And uh, it's weird because I hated it, but it was also my gateway to to the internet and the, the kind of online world. So I kind of hate it and love it. You know what I mean? I'm in a weird relationship with Internet Explorer. I think a lot of people did. And I think, you know, you can probably thank Internet Explorer, as awful as it was in you know, most releases and the fact that no one really had much love for IE. Um, it probably did do a lot to get kind of normal people online because you can think of now that model of Netscape actually selling a web browser. Can you imagine going out and paying like, you know, 30, 40, 50 quid for a web browser today? Unthinkable. Yeah. But that's yeah, thanks totally. to what and, and you would feel totally ripped off if you had paid 30, 40 quid and then so, something came out for free, wouldn't you? You know. But like you said, I mean, the fact that Microsoft kind of broke standards and stuff, you know, and there was that court case as well. Even though I think Netscape kind of shot themselves in the foot by, you know, turning into bloatware in the end. Yeah. It can't be denied that IE did a lot of bad as well. So it's no surprise to see that there have been, uh, you know, quite a lot of uh, memes and uh, people posting things all over Twitter this week. One that I love, I think this is in Malaysia, actually. Someone's actually made a real-life tombstone for Internet Explorer. <laughs> So there's a headstone there with the IE logo on, the date's on there, 1995 to 2022, and the inscription at the bottom says, he was a good tool to download other browsers, <laughs> which I think was really all anyone used Internet Explorer for for the last 20 years or so, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there was there was a kind of use of that. But yeah, like I said, stuff like Real Player and stuff, it really did like open up open up the world. And uh, if you if you're a Mac user, I guess you were totally... On, on Safari or something then. Well, no, <laughs> Internet it? Explorer was the default was browser still on, on the, the Mac. Mac as well. God, 
Yeah. It was, yeah. Well, when when Microsoft did that big investment in Apple, you remember in the late nineties? Oh yeah, ninety seven. That was the announcement that I see. I didn't use a Mac until later on. I do. I do remember now. You mentioned that that there was an Internet Explorer on Mac. God, it and it was terrible. Took over the world, didn't it? <laughs> that is the only time I've ever seen Steve Jobs get booed on stage. <laughs> so um, yeah, that, I'll put that video if I can find it on YouTube in our show notes as well. One thing that I thought was interesting is there is an official Microsoft Edge Twitter account. And did you see their tribute to Internet Explorer last week? Yeah, that that was really weird. I saw it and it was like, wait a minute. They've, they've got Internet Explorer on a CRT monitor, but also on what looks like an Amiga 1000 with the badges removed. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that was never on the Amiga 1000 ever. You know what, though, because that image now, this has been all over Twitter. Yeah, this is on Microsoft Edge's official account. It says, um, to our predecessor... You helped the world explore the internet along with every facet of life. Now it's time to surf the big web in the sky. And there is a picture of the IE icon full screen on what appears to be an Amiga 1000. And as you can imagine, you know, the Amiga fans found this. All the replies, if you go through, there's hundreds of them, you know, just ripping into Microsoft for this. And I've actually seen that image of the Amiga 1000 before, I think it's on something like ThinkStock or iStock. If you search for, like, you know, retro PC, that uh, image comes up. So what I think's <laughs> happened here is it's probably some, like, you know, 19, 20-year-old who works at Microsoft who does graphic design for them. They've probably just done that, gone on ThinkStock and gone, like, you know, old computer, found that not knowing what it was, and just kind of put that logo I, on I the think screen. It's, That's what I suspect I think happened. it's a nice way to market, like, something completely wrong and broken at the very end. And it like adds, yeah. adds to the legacy, you know. It's like, yeah, oh, at least they're still messing it up. <laughs> yeah, so it's, well, that's got the more, I think, attention than anything else, actually having that running on an Amiga screen. You know, I don't think the tweet would have blown up quite as well as it did. So maybe it was intentional. You never know. Uh, but there you go. So Internet Explorer officially is no more. Although I can't remember the last time I actually opened IE, probably around 12, 13 years ago. So, like so said, this is, this is my prediction in a year. Yeah. People are going to be walking around in Primark in Internet Explorer tops and um, tracksuits. And I'm sure they're going to like use the brand and the logo for a long time. And yeah, it will become a fashion icon. (laughs) If Stranger Things makes it to like 1995... (laughs) <laughs> That's when Internet Explorer will be cool again. You just watch. So there you go. If you want to read more about the uh, the memories of Internet Explorer, a couple of cool videos have come out this week as well, so I'll show a few of those in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Right, we'll wake Joe up now from being, you know, too much computer nerdy talk for him. <laughs> I've been awake. <laughs> now, this is uh, one more story we'll squeeze in before we get into our, our chat this week. Kind of follows on quite nicely from uh, the episode we did recently with Randy Breen, where we are talking about um, Fade to Black, which was a successor to one of my all-time favourite games, Flashback, that came out on PS1 and the PC back in the mid-90s. Quite weirdly, as soon as that episode dropped, this totally went under the radar for me. And Actually, bizarrely, I thought this would have been bigger news than it turns out to be. So I don't know about you guys, I haven't seen this anywhere, but this was actually um, announced last week, and there's a little teaser video as well, that Flashback 2, a sequel from long-established French studio Microids, is apparently going to be coming out a little bit later on this year. And that is to mark the 30th anniversary of Flashback 2. Now, it did say that this announcement was originally kind of mentioned or rumoured back in 2021. When I heard that, I thought, did we talk about this on the podcast or not? But I don't remember 
ever chatting about this, but there is a short 58-second trailer that they've uploaded to YouTube that kind of gives us a little glimpse into the uh, the sequel to Flashback. Now, this one looks a lot more in the vein of the original game than something like Fate to Black that was a 3D game. Yeah, you're the big in-house Flashback fan, aren't you? Um, what, what do you think of this? And like, I've noticed there's different sections in it. So there's like driving sections and uh, zip lines and all kinds of stuff in this trailer. Um, it, it looks interesting. What do you What do you think, Dan and Joe? I don't know if you guys. Did you guys ever play Flashback originally? Yeah, I've, I've played Flashback for the um, the Mega Drive, and then I have actually played Fate to Black for the PS One as well. Um, I I could have sworn there was a about 10 years ago, like, or maybe not that long ago, there was a, like a, an updated version of flashback for like, Xbox yeah, the HD remaster. Yeah. And it was terrible. Well, yeah. Was I was going to say, I remember playing that one. I don't, I don't remember it being very good. Um, but I've always enjoyed these games, you know, the, I don't know the style of the game, but you know, the Prince of Persia and, um, another world and all that kind of stuff. I've always really enjoyed these kind of, kind of games, but I don't know if they've kind of captured that from looking at the trailer. I mean, like you say, it's only a 58 second trailer, I don't know if they've captured that feel as well. It looks a little bit, and it's going to sound really stupid, but it looks a little bit too smooth for flashback. Mm. You know, these kind of games, I always associate them with being quite slow and methodical and you have to really think about. Essentially, I, I kind of play them as like a puzzler, if that makes sense. Like, you know, like Abe's Odyssey and stuff like, okay, you're going to take three steps forward, then you're going to duck and then you're going to jump and then you're going to shoot and then you're going to roll. Like, I really yeah. like that methodical kind of-ness of them. Whereas this, I don't know, it, it, like I say, it's a 58-second trailer. And in the trailer, you can't actually see the gameplay perfectly because it's all kind of like being projected out of like a device, isn't it? Like Yeah, the holocube. Yeah, the holocube. The and um, it just looks a little bit too fast and smooth for me for flashback. But I don't know, you know, I've not played the game. You know, I, I, obviously none of us have played the game yet. I don't have a feel for it yet. Um, but that's my concern about it. But, you know... What do you think, Dan? You're you're the big flash. I, I agree. I mean, I think this looks like a, a very pacey, side-scrolling action shooter game, doesn't yeah. it? But the original flashback, you're right, there's a lot of puzzle elements in there. The fact that you've got to find, you know, keys for switches, and there's a lot of that kind of meticulous timing mm. that you've got to do. You know, you might throw a rock to activate a switch, mm. and then an enemy would turn away, and you've got a time, you know, getting your gun out and rolling down and standing up and shooting them. Yeah at the right time and so th- there was a lot of that in the original game yet yeah, does look i mean like I said there's only less than a minute of footage here but there's not much pausing in here you <laughs> know just feel like he's just going yeah, through just it. and kind of blasting, blasting everything, everything inside yeah so yeah it's interesting it kind of makes me wonder as well where like fate to black you know now, now appears in the, the timeline whether they're just going to kind of forget that kind of element of the story and this is just going to be a sequel to the first game but apparently Paul Quissett, who was, you know, the, the original creator of Flashback, is involved in this as well, wasn't you know, there, in terms of the story. Wasn't there, like, an element, I remember, where you, you had to chuck stones at things and stuff? Yeah, yeah, you would, to, to open doors and yeah, yeah. generally to activate things. Um, weirdly, it's not the only Flashback thing I've seen this week. I mean, talking about, you know, again, Game Boy Advance footage. I was watching a video the other day uh, that an unreleased version of Flashback that was going to come out on the Game Boy Advance in around 2002 they look very similar to the original, only really colourful. Right. It's bizarre. You can actually find that on um, on YouTube. There's kind of loads of, like, you know, bright yellow plants and everything mm-hmm. in the first level, and it looks really bizarre. Um, but it just kind of feel like, yeah, Flashback, really a franchise, apart from that dreadful 2013 re-release, has kind of been dormant since the mid-90s. So it just kind of feel like it's the right time 
to kind of maybe do a proper sequel to it. But again, it's just a game that's very much, like I said, there's a lot goes into it. It's not just a typical kind of blast everything on the screen kind of game. So I hope having Paul involved, I mean, the guy who made the game originally, you think that he would understand the atmosphere and logistics of what goes yeah. into a good flashback and, and a French company as well, um, kind of sticking yeah. to its roots. They're, they're missing a trick here, not calling it flashbacked, though. Like, flashback. Yeah. <laughs> flashback to the future. Yeah. yeah, interesting. So, I mean, again, I love that game, so it is something I'll be checking out, absolutely. Hoping it doesn't disappoint, like, uh, you know, the flashback remake that we got in 2013. Maybe it means that fans can just completely forget that ever happened if this uh, this new version's good. So we'll keep an eye on that. It's meant to be out in uh, winter this year, so hopefully not too long to wait. Now, before we chat to this week's special guest, just a quick reminder, a little bit of housekeeping. I think, you know, it's always important to just uh, give a little mention to now and then because we do have a Discord. And I've noticed people in there have been sharing news stories and stuff. A lot of people actually email us, you know, how do I get news to you guys? Discord's a really good way of doing that, isn't it? Yeah, Discord's like a wicked community. It's 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 very nice. It's like IRC mixed with a forum, mixed with a kind of direct messaging system. I really love Discord. It's like my main kind of social network that I actually use. And uh, yeah, we've got a server on there. Uh, we've got the invite on the website as well. Um, some great stuff. You can even like do self-promotion if you're streaming and you want people to like view what you're up to, chat about retro news, suggest guests, um, chat about the latest episode as well. So uh, yeah, definitely check us out on Discord because uh, it's a lovely little community going on there. Yeah, and a good way to... Get a hold of us guys as well, you know, because um, generally I'm lurking in there. Ravi, you know, you check quite a bit in there too. Yeah, so you can add to kind of get and, a message uh, We'll be able to reply, like, yeah, and get notified yeah. that you've talked to us, you know. Absolutely. And I want to say a huge thank you to Dan770 and The Real Force, who um, left us a couple of reviews on Apple Podcast as well. Nice left five-star reviews. We'd really appreciate that. If you enjoy what we do, another really simple way to support the show, pop onto your podcast client of choice. Leave us a little five-star rating on there, a little nice review. Always helps us get in front of new people as well. So we massively appreciate those. Please keep them coming in. And right now then, time to talk about this incredible new retro-inspired beat-em-up game with our friends from Bitmap Bureau. We're going to get the story of Final Vendetta next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time for the main event then when we welcome on our very special guest and actually really timely because everyone's been talking about this incredible new retro style beat-em-up game from our friends at Bitmap Bureau, Final Vendetta. So we thought we'd get the team on, some of the team at least, uh, to give us a bit of an insight into what goes into making a modern retro inspired beat-em-up game and a bit of a catch-up as well. So let's welcome on Mike Tucker and Lee Mintram. How you doing, Mike? Hey guys, yeah, um, yeah, I'm good. Great to be back. Yeah, it's been a hectic few days, but, but I'm, I'm fine, thanks. Yeah, yeah, it's been it's, it's been a few years since we last spoke, so yeah, thanks for having us back. Yeah, because you are the design director of Bitmap Bureau, and we actually had you on. We thought it was maybe like 18 months ago. Um, January 2018, Yeah, last time we had you on this podcast, which is like insane that it's over four years ago now. That's mad, yeah. It's it's like when you're making a game, you know, a couple of years just flies by. But um, yeah, since then we did Battle Axe, and uh, of course, Center Crisis uh, went really well for us, and we've expanded the studio since then. And um, yeah, we thought we'd have a go at making a beat-em-up for a, a bit of fun. <laughs> 
And we're joined by Atlee Mintram as well. Now, Lee, I know you're a long-time friend of the podcast. We've been talking for many years. I am, yes. And a very accomplished um, video game musician as well. So um, I'm looking forward to finding out a bit about what goes into, you know, making audio for these kind of games. So it's nice to have you on, Lee. That's great. Yeah, thanks for having us on, guys. I really appreciate it. So let's start with a bit of a catch-up then, um, Mike. I mean, like you said, you know, you're working on um, Xenocrisis last time we talked. I think the the Kickstarter had just launched, um, and then you kind of, you know, were promoting it as like a, a new Mega Drive game as well. Mm. So in that kind of four and a half years, I mean, how Bitmap Bureau kind of got on then? Have you kind of grown in size? How the project's been going? And kind of what have you been up to then in the last, you know, nearly half a decade <laughs> since we spoke? Um, yeah, well, we've been very busy with... Um various projects really but yeah Xeno Crisis went down really well and um, my colleague Matt he he's uh, been busy porting it to various platforms including the the Neo Geo systems uh, Dreamcast of course and uh, yeah after that we we thought we'd continue to work with Hank Nieborg the amazing pixel artist from the Amiga days and uh, he had a a project called Battleaxe that he wanted to uh, to make so yeah we thought that yeah let's team up again and uh, so yeah, we had a, a Kickstarter for that that went very well and managed to publish that through Numskull Games. And we're looking to bring that to Neo Geo as well. Uh, it's, it's quite a demanding title technically, so it's, uh, it's going to take us a while. But um, in the meantime, we've been uh, yeah making this beat 'em up called Final Vendetta, which is uh, also targeting Neo Geo but modern platforms as well. And yeah, the, the studio has been doing great. Uh, we've expanded quite considerably i think we're up to about eight full-time staff now and we work with various other artists uh, around the world uh, and lee down the road <laughs> um, and yeah i couldn't be happier really it's um it's all going very nicely and yeah we've got a, a, also a couple of very big titles in production as well so all good here yeah well you mentioned about um battle accent as well i mean that was for people that Missed that. That was a, a Gauntlet-inspired game, wasn't it? Um, what was kind of the story with that? Just nice to find out a bit about um, Battleaxe. I noticed that Hank had some mock-ups on Twitter for this uh, top-down action kind of adventure game. Uh, I think it was called Battle Bash at the time. Um, but yeah, after Xeno Crisis, yeah, we, we needed to uh, get stuck into another project, and I, I thought that would be perfect, really. So um, And yeah, Hank was, of course, very keen, so... Yeah, we uh, launched a Kickstarter and then uh, Numskull came and spoke to us as well and they provided some financial backing and the usual sort of publisher support. So uh, yeah, it was a real fun title that combined elements of Golden Axe, Gauntlet, uh, probably Knights of the Round, if you know that, by Capcom. It kind of reminds me of Story of Four for the Mega Drive as well. Oh yes, exactly. Yeah, we had a good look at that. Yeah, Yeah, it's a very, Mm. it's a gorgeous game. I think it's by Ancient. Yeah. I I think Yuzo Koshiro did the music. Um, so yeah, very much in a similar vein. That was a bit more sort of action RPG, but this is pure arcade action, really. And yeah, it's um, it kind of builds on Xeno Crisis in a way because it's top-down kind of shooting and melee combat again. But yeah, it was a real showcase for Hank Nebog's incredible art. And luckily, we were able to team up with the um, uh, the ex-Capcom musician Manami Matsume, who weirdly worked on Final Fight and. Uh, Knights of the Round, Area 88, and uh, Mega Man, games like that. So, yeah, that was a real honour. And uh, now we're working with Lee instead, which is <laughs> just, it's just as exciting. You're stuck with me now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Lee, give us a bit of a background. You know, how did you get started in, you know, amazing, making music on computers? Because I know you were a big Amiga fan. 
Yeah, yeah. So I kind of uh, had the Amiga back in the 90s. I was a huge, huge fan of kind of the demo scene and, um, mm. you know, soft, software houses like uh, Bitmap Brothers, um, Team 17. used to love Alistair Brimble, all his music, uh, the Jesus on Ease, you know, state-of-the-art demos, things like that. So they were like a huge influence for me. And getting an Amiga, I mean, to this day, I'm like a diehard Amiga fan. Mike's Mike's shrugging his shoulders next to me because he used to have an ST. I'm all about Atari ST. Oh. I'm sorry. Yeah, I can't, I can't listen to this. But yeah, carry on, Lee. So he's just going to block his ears while I waffle on now. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the Amiga was kind of like that that computer that came along and allowed people to get into music on a budget. So did basically. the ST, actually. Oh, yeah. Just not okay. You know, that is interesting because, I mean, there was kind of, there's always been that rivalry, you know, the ST and the Amiga. But actually, yeah. in terms of a musician's choice, I mean, the ST was generally, because of those MIDI ports, regarded as that. I mean, was there any it, any reason that you preferred the Amiga over the ST for audio then? It was, you know, and I, I used an ST as well when I started working in a studio and um, doing some sort of later releases. But the thing with the ST is, yes, it had the MIDI ports, but in order to use the MIDI ports, you needed outboard gear. So you needed to buy yourself a sampler, a synthesizer, a mixing desk. And of course, when you start buying things like that, the costs just go up. You know, you're looking at, I mean, back in the 90s, I remember paying nearly £800 for a sampler. So, you know, with an Amiga, I mean, my Amiga, I ended up getting a reconditioned one for £200. So for £200, I could sample, I had four channels uh, of audio that I could work with, I could sequence um, and, you know, for a 13, 14-year-old kid, uh, buying a, a huge studio with a sampler and a synth is just, you know, you can't do it. So that's why I kind of always favoured the Amiga, because you could just write music in the box. It was a really creative computer. You know, when you look at things like Apple and computers now, they're geared at sort of uh, the, the industry, the creative industry. And the Amiga was kind of doing that years and years ago. You know, it was the video toaster, all the, the graphics cards and uh, the things you could do of it was just like amazing. So that's why I always favoured the Amiga, just the price, um, being able to do it all in the box on one system, uh, save on a disc, uh, yeah, and just play it to your friends and, yeah, just loved it. Did you ever release any kind of like um, mods on the demo scene or anything like that back then? I didn't do, I didn't really get into the demo scene releasing stuff. I, th- I think I was a bit kind of too young at the time um mm. but i did a few years later take a demo which i had written on the amiga and i took it into a record shop in town a place called movement records and i ended up getting a early record deal off the back of that and um oh, wow. i remember going into the studio and the engineer there was sort of showing me how to use the sampler and everything and he was like oh what, what did you write this on i told him the amiga and he was kind of you know, sort of really surprised that what you could get out of the Amiga. And we tried to recreate what I had written on the Amiga in this more expensive studio. And we, to be honest, we really struggled to kind of capture that sound and get the original vibe of that track. But, you know, it's an amazing machine. And, I, you know, I, I do credit having an Amiga as a huge part of what I do now because it enabled me to get started in music and understand production and sampling and things like that. 
Well, Mike, I mean, you mentioned that you had, you know, the ST um, when you were a kid and kind of, I mean, we did kind of touch on your history in the industry because I know you've worked in the industry for for a long time. Mm. Um, Last time we had you on, but it might be nice to have a little bit of a refresher for people that maybe, you know, didn't hear the last interview. I mean, kind of give us your your, history then. So, I mean, from the ST kind of getting into the gaming industry, where did that kind of go? Um, Yeah, so my first job was uh, as a QA tester at SCI, uh, previously known as uh, Storm also known as sales curves sales curve interactive um and yeah i got my i think i got my job there purely on the um uh purely because i brought in the playstation one memory card with my ridge racer times on <laughs> that was enough to <laughs> convince them that this guy's serious about playing games and yeah from there um i very nearly quit in the first week because testing is terrible job actually uh yeah playing the same game eight hours a day five days a week uh, even if it's a great game, you'll you'll be sick of it um, in no time. And uh, mm. yeah, I was, I was testing some pretty bad stuff, but um, yeah, I stuck with it. And uh, luckily, moved on to level design, and then uh, ended up working in London with the London Development Studio of SCI. Yeah, uh, luckily, I eventually got headhunted and brought back to Eastleigh in near Southampton, where I live. And we were making uh, a Dreamcast game then called Stampede. Uh, that was for Infogrames. Uh, and they put a lot of money into it, but sadly the project didn't quite happen and yeah, eventually got cancelled. So the studio was in a, a difficult position really. So we decided to go into making mobile games, some of the very first mobile games, in fact, for the likes of Nokia and Ericsson and Orange. Uh, so yeah, so I think we made noughts and crosses, in fact, for, for Nokia. So yeah, you can imagine very, very simple primitive games. And yeah, I've now moved on to yeah Bitmap Bureau where we're making retro games, I suppose, with a modern twist for um, not only for modern platforms but also uh, the yeah the retro stuff such as the Sega Mega Drive, Neo Geo, Dreamcast, and uh, there'll be a few more soon, I'm, I'm sure. You know, we talked to a lot of people that started in QA. Mm. <laughs> it's like, it's weird. I had a friend who worked for Sega doing quality testing and they used to make him work night shifts and everything. <laughs> I remember when he first started his first week, he's like, it's going to be the best job ever. <laughs> I get to sit there, play games all night. They bring us free pizza and everything. It lasted about three nights, I think, before he quit. Oh, really? it's, it's not quite the dream job people think it is, oh, is it? Oh, I can believe that. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's horrible. Yeah, um, because no, one, I don't think anyone really sits there and plays a video game for eight hours straight even in your free time at the weekend you know um yeah i might i might have done it as a teenager for but you know you do other stuff and you might and you might switch games but yeah to play an, a game for eight hours straight is just horrible and if it's a game you don't like you know immensely it's, it's just so demanding so but it kind of helps in a way because you get so frustrated and annoyed with the game that you just want to break it so you just invent new ways of um entertaining yourself by ju- just doing stupid stuff in the game and uh, <laughs> actually that's quite a good way of finding bugs so yeah I, w- I was quite an effective tester but yeah i just really wanted to get into the creative side of things so uh, i was lucky to eventually escape the test department <laughs> <laughs> and then they give you a free copy of the game that you've been playing every night at the end that you never open <laughs> exactly never yeah, i've got again, so yeah. many of them yeah <laughs> actually there's something we're worth quite a bit now um but yeah it's like the last thing you want you've been playing this game for like a year for 40 hours a week and yeah here's your here's your reward at the end of it here's a here's a sealed copy of uh you know carmageddon or kingdom of magic or whatever it was. <laughs> actually carmageddon was cool that yeah that was that was the best title title i tested but but you know even after a year of that it's like oh you don't want to play it again yeah <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> brilliant 
Well, Lee, you've worked on some huge games and also some huge ad campaigns. How did you first get into the industry? Because of, like you say, you started initially as a DJ, you know, on the Amigas and stuff. How did that come about? Yeah, well, over the years, kind of releasing through sort of various labels, they uh, labels tend to pitch their music to ad companies and games companies. And sort of, if you're lucky, one of them will pick something up. Um, hmm. So over the years, you know, I've had a few placements in like the FIFA franchise. And uh, in the early days, I had a track on um, uh, Jet Set Radio, which oh, cool. I was yeah. super chuffed about because, yeah. I mean, the soundtrack on that is just that nuts. Is cool. yeah. It's crazy. It's, it's so the coolest good. game ever, right? So, yeah, you know, that, that kind of happens that way. And then um, I remember at one point uh, I was with a label and they pitched uh, some music and I ended up landing uh, a track on an uh, Apple iPod advert. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I mean, that was just, it was an amazing time, but, you know, they sort of tell you that it's in the running uh, to be picked. So you you kind of have this agonizing six-week wait of, are they actually going to pick it? And, you know, I was constantly phoning up the label, annoying them and saying, you know, what's the news? Have you heard anything yet? Um, mm. And in the end, I think I kind of got down to the last two and it was me and a, a Timberland track of all people. If you remember Timberland and Missy <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, so it was between me and him. And and the, the story is, I don't know if this is true, but I'm going to believe it's true because it's, it's a cool story that Steve Jobs himself picked my track. And that's what they told oh, me wow. at the label. So I'm kind of going to, I'm going to go with that story and believe it and hope that it was true because that's pretty cool. Um, I can, I can just imagine him now like, yeah, tell him Steve Jobs picked it. I'll keep him quiet. Yeah, I'll stop him <laughs> every day. Uh, I'm joking. So, that's but, awesome. Yeah. In the end they, they use my track and then, you know, all of a sudden it was like, I think it was the th- second or third iPod. I don't know if you remember the iPod adverts where they were like mm. completely Sort of, sort of silhouettes, wasn't it? Yeah, silhouettes. silhouettes with the yeah, colors. Yeah, 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 iconic, weren't they? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it, it was really cool. And then it was it was a worldwide advert, so it was sort of played all over the world. And um, I, I, well, I, I did this really silly thing. So I'd, I'd actually sampled. Uh, it's quite a long story, but I, I sampled a band for this track, and we were a bit cheeky, and we released it before, and then of course Apple picked it up. So then we had to go and tell the band that we'd sampled them. And mm. of course, then they were like, well, we want so-and-so percent. Otherwise, we're not going to let you have it. So we ended up giving away quite a bit uh, yeah. of the um, royalties and everything. Uh, but because it was sampled, I then had to, they flew me out to LA mm. and uh, to re-record parts for the track. Mm. And I kind of went into the studio and um, All Saints were in there and Madonna was coming in next week and uh during breaks of doing this re-recording we would get on these bikes and we would ride around the beach and um it was just nuts it was, it was a crazy like experience and then i kind of came home to normal reality and sort of everything was like <laughs> back to work and then a few weeks later it started appearing on the tv and i i remember watching um the brit awards and it came on in mm. the adverts and sort of seeing it on tv and you know a track that i'd written at home, sat in my mum's house in the back on, room. On the Amiga? Not on the Amiga, no. <laughs> no not on the Amiga. <laughs> on, a, on a proper studio by that point. Yeah, it's just like an amazing experience and, you know, something that's really cool and kind of like a, a special sort of time that I, you know, look back fondly of. So, yeah, that was cool. Because, you know, you talk about those Apple commercials, you know, the silhouette ones, and to me, I mean, they're, they're probably the most iconic 
Apple commercials and the one that everyone remembers. And I mean, that kind of was around the time when the icon, the iPod became a, a bit of a cultural phenomenon, didn't it? It really felt like you got to that third or fourth gen of the iPod. Yeah. That's when mainstream people adopted it and it suddenly changed the world. I mean, must have been an exciting thing to be in the middle of all that. It was. And, you know, like I say, the whole wait and waiting for the track to get picked, you know, it was, it was a real kind of agonizing time. But then when it happened, it was it was quite unbelievable. It kind of didn't sink in at first. And and I mean, the deal we ended up getting, I remember going up back to the the label was based in Brighton. And they'd um they'd obviously asked for money and a fee and everything, but they'd also asked Apple for loads of computers and iPods. And they said to me, Oh, what would you like? And I I didn't want to take the deal and I didn't want to put Apple off. This is the what I was thinking anyway. So I kind of just asked for a G5 Mac and uh, an iPod so I, I get that delivered so I go down to the label to pick it up I walk into their offices and the entire office is covered in Mac laptops iPods desktop computers <laughs> and I remember just thinking at the time oh, I really wish I'd asked for more from them but you know you just didn't want to like I didn't want to take the deal and I didn't want them to be like oh no that you're asking for too much this isn't going to happen uh, which they wouldn't have done you know, <laughs> somebody else would be like, can I have 20 iPods? Can I have? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Brilliant. And he says Pimac G5s could uh, heat your room in the winter as well. I remember they do. That. Well, my G5 now is literally a stand for my hard drives underneath my desk. Yeah. And I, I just can't bring myself to get rid of it because just because of the memories from it and that experience yeah. so is just going to constantly stay under my desk now. Uh, and Mike, I mean, you mentioned before about, you know, porting um, Xenocrisis to the Neo Geo. And I mean, you know, we've talked about the the Neo Geo quite a bit on this podcast in the in the past. I mean, you know, to me when I was at school, the Neo Geo was always kind of this um, mythical system that like, you know, a friend's cousin had one yeah. somewhere. Never got to play one. I read about them in magazines and everything. I mean, what kind of attracted you to um, porting it to the Neo Geo then? And what's kind of the story with, uh, with doing that in the process? Well, it's largely because uh, Xenocrisis was uh, initially a Mega Drive title. And the Neo Geo and Mega Drive same, share the same resolution, which is 320 by 224. Uh, so it just means that the art assets created by Henk um, can very easily be dropped onto a Neo Geo. And uh, also the code is very similar as well. Um, I, I didn't write, I didn't uh, port the code myself, but I, I did write some of it. But um, yeah, my colleague Matt did all the heavy lifting there. Um, so yeah, it's, it seemed like a logical thing to do. Uh, we were also approached by, I forget who it was, but, um, some, someone suggested it to us. Um, HP man. Yes. HP man. There you go. So yeah, he's a bit of a legend in the Neo Geo dev community and, uh, yeah, he, he, um, got the ball rolling for us really. But yeah, beyond that, yeah, the Neo Geo is just, just an amazing system. It's a real 2D powerhouse, similar to the Saturn really, but yeah, just to get a game on the systems, just uh, just awesome, really. And and there's a real hardcore following. So, yeah, as soon as we announced it, we, you know, we had a lot of interest and it, it's gone down very well. Yeah. So, and, and following that, it, it seemed logical to make another Neo Geo game, really, because we put all that effort into uh, learning about the system and creating our own PCB and the cartridges and the uh, boxes and, and so on. So, so yeah, that's that's how we moved from uh, uh, creating Xenocrisis to uh, Final Vendetta. And those PCBs and cartridges, I mean, they're massive on the Neo Geo. They they can't be cheap things to make. No, we've we've spent 
I guess, tens of thousands really um, developing our own PCBs and perfecting the yeah the molds for the cases and the boxes. It's yeah, it's it's not for the faint-hearted, and I can see why there's <laughs> very few people, um, very few people doing it. Yeah, and we, yeah, we have, we had a lot of problems along the way. The, the the initial PCB design seemed solid to start with, but um, upon testing, we we found that it was resetting every so often. So um, yeah, we we spent a lot of time and money uh, perfecting the PCB, uh, and even on launch, there were a couple of issues that were noticed on particular versions of the MVS system. So we had to go back and fix those as well. But but yeah, now our PCB and our, and our tech are um, yeah very much refined, and so future Neo Geo releases um, shouldn't have any issues at all. So just in terms of Final Vendetta, you know it's it's got a very Neo Geo look to it. You know I didn't I didn't realize it was coming to the Neo Geo as well, and yeah. it's got that really nice, obviously solid kind of thirty two bit but two D look to it was was that kind of purposeful you know from the ground up with you knowing it was going to come out on the neo geo or is it just kind of it just kind of fell that way with the artwork no that was absolutely what absolutely what we were going for really um yeah we, we felt like the neo geo needed a, a new 2d beat-em-up uh because mm-hmm. the previous efforts are a, a bit mediocre um such as burning fight and <laughs> mutation nation sengoku i mean they've got their charms but we thought we could do a better job so um yeah we we started looking for an artist that could create sprites in the snk style and yeah we've been looking for a long time um but but yeah luckily one day i stumbled on a a tumblr blog for this artist called jabir grant who's he was doing uh sprite edits for various games and uh i wasn't quite sure what he was doing you know i wasn't sure how much of it what I was seeing was his own work, but actually he was creating sprites from scratch uh, very much in the SNK style. So he might yeah. take um, uh, um, one of the characters from a, a data East fighting game and then recreate it in uh, SNK's style or the King of Fighters style, for example. Yeah. And yeah, I was just blown away by his, his skill. Uh, and yeah, we, we asked him to, if he'd like to work with us and create some sprites for a fighting game. And he, yeah, he was very enthusiastic. Um, mm. also very prolific as well um yeah incredibly uh, all of the sprite work in final vendetta is created by him um he's he's created all of the characters you know thousands of frames of animation uh, and without him the the project just couldn't have happened so uh yeah we have to <laughs> we are in one that's amazing uh, but, but yeah he's an amazing amazing sprite artist and mm. just some people just have a, a real knack for it but yeah there's very few yeah, people who yeah. can create sprites of that size with that many frames so prolifically so, I, I, I was going to say it's very notable the the animation the frame that like the i don't know if the frame rate of the word is the right word for it but the you know the frames of animation is really really beautiful so no really top work there yeah i mean we we tried to surpass um capcom and uh streets of rage two and three mm. um i mean they were limited by memory of course to some extent yeah. But yeah, we we hope we've nailed that that sort of classic Neo Geo look. Really, uh, I think a lot of mm. people are saying are saying it's a sort of like visually, it's like a crossover between Final Fight and King of Fighters, and yeah, so that's good. That's that's what we're going for. Really, a, a very very nineties beat 'em up. So it's, that's yeah. really good to hear. I um I watched a Game Sacks review of it yesterday, and he he 
he summarised it as, I wish they'd just called it Streets of Final Fight or something like that. Oh, what was it? The Final Vendetta of Rage. Or <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's about right. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was brilliant. So, um, but you've also released games on the Dreamcast, you know, like you say, the Mega Drive and stuff like that. Is there any other retro platforms you'd love to release a game on? Speaking personally, uh, yeah, the PlayStation 1 is probably my favourite machine of all time just because mm. of that crossover between great 2D games and and also, you know, early 3D games, really. Um, I, I still think the you know, PlayStation 1 games, the 3D stuff holds up better than N64, for example. Yeah, it has a certain look to it. Um, <laughs> uh, but also, I love the PC Engine and the Super Nintendo. Um, they're slightly problematic because of the um, uh, the resolution that they they run at. I think the SNES is 256 by 224, and the PC Engine is a bit weird as well. It, it doesn't match the Mega Drive, that's for sure. So, so it means that moving our games over to those systems, like Xenocrisis, for example, we we get asked about that all the time. It would it would require so much uh, reworking on the art and code that it's um, yeah it's. It's, it would just be too big a project for us. Um, and even then, we're not sure that in terms of the processor, we're not sure the, the SNES and the uh, PC Engine can hold up. But but yeah, um, so I'm hoping, yeah, maybe one day it could happen. Yeah, my colleague Matt's he's busy working on, let's say, um, uh, some other ports. Um, so yeah, we, we should have something to announce soon on that front. So yeah, we are, we are looking at other machines, let's say that. And of course, the Amiga. You meet <laughs> Atari ST first, mate. I'm sorry. <laughs> there does seem to be a lot of new Amiga games coming out recently, though. We've been covering quite a lot of them. It does seem to be, you know, I think it's a couple of beat 'em ups that are coming out on there. Yeah, is it Metro well, Metro actually. City Metro, Brawl? Metro C. Yeah, yeah, we had them on. Yeah, yeah. yeah I wonder whether you could get Xeno Crisis onto the Amiga. Matt, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we've we got, our, co- we got our colleague Matt in the background. Um, well. They share the same processor, don't they? The Motorola 68000 mm. and the same screen resolution. Um, I think the biggest issue is the, the memory, which is you know, squeezing all the graphics uh, into the Amiga's memory. So I, I don't know. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it would certainly be a challenge. But I think, um, yeah, given Hank's link with the Amiga, I think it would be perfectly suited to it uh, if it could happen. But... Not uh, easy undertakings, but, you know, maybe one day. We'll see. I, th- I think Matt could do it in an afternoon. Oh. <laughs> Matt, Matt, get on it now. He's, he's Before we Well, Lee, I mean, how did you get involved with uh, Bitmap Bureau then? So you mentioned that you're just down the road. I mean, what's kind of your background with meeting these guys and getting involved in the project? Yeah, so that, that was kind of totally random. Um, my wife actually rented an office next door to them and uh, – she sort of came home one day and was like, oh, there's these guys next door, nerds. These, these nerds next door. <laughs> <laughs> they make, um, I think she said at the time, they make games for mobile phones because she didn't really know any, you know, wasn't uh, too aware of what they were doing. Um, and then one day uh, my wife said to me, oh, can Matt and Mike come down and listen to a vinyl that they've just pressed up? Um, and this turned out to be the Zeno Crisis vinyl and they just got the test presses back which is where they send you an early copy to make sure it plays okay and everything's fine and of course they didn't have a turntable or a record player so they came down to the studio and uh, had a listen to it and we sort of got chatting and I started going on about the Amiga again to Mike <laughs> and uh, just chatting about like what we sort of grew up with games wise and just seemed to sort of get on and 
I mean, at the time, I remember Michael Matt saying, oh, we were thinking of starting a beat-em-up and we should get you to do the music. And kind of at the time, I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, you know, just say that sort of thing, but it probably wouldn't happen. And then I think it was only a few months later when you sort of made a start on it and they were like, yeah, come and do the soundtrack. Mm. So I was like super excited about that and was like, yeah, I'm definitely up for that. So I kind of made a start on that before seeing any artwork, which was a bit of a mistake um, because, yeah, I kind of got a bit too enthusiastic about the whole project and just started writing music from the off. Um, But as you kind of start getting the artwork in and you see the game develop, you you realize that certain tracks don't really work or don't feel right with the levels. So I kind of scrapped a lot of the first uh, rough ideas that I made. Uh, I mean, at home now, I mean, the soundtrack is 30 tracks. And then if you buy the Super Collector's Edition, there's another four bonus tracks. And then at home, I've probably got another 15 tracks. Um, so there was a lot of music written for the game, um, which was good because it enabled us to pick the best tracks out of the bunch. But yeah, we kind of started that. And then sort of in between working on that, they started Battle Axe and uh, the guys asked me if I'd like to do the sound uh, sound effects for that, which I'd never done before. And I just sort of said, yep. Yeah. I'll do that. And then was like, uh, how do I do this? And just sort of <laughs> watched, watched some videos. And uh, I mean, you know, I've, I've been writing music for a long time and I'm, I'm familiar with audio, but, you know, doing a, uh, a certain job for a, a certain game, you know, you and, and something that I've never done before, you know, I was a bit kind of, oh, can I do that? Um, but I think it, it turned out all right. And um, the guys were happy with the sounds. And then I jumped back into Vendetta, carried on with the soundtrack. Uh, did the sound effects for that as well um and yeah and ever since then they can't get rid of me and i just <laughs> come up to their office every day and bug them you're and not even on you're not even on the payroll you just turn up <laughs> yeah I just, I just turn up and so if there's any games that come out late and uh don't meet schedules that's because of me hanging around and stopping them working <laughs> fantastic <laughs> was there yeah. um was there any games, you know, you kind of looked back to? Like, obviously, Streets of Rage has got such an iconic, you know, soundtrack to it. Was there any kind of, like, when you were doing these soundtracks, did you go and study a lot of these games? Or, you know, were you a big fan of these games as a child and you just thought, you know what, I know exactly what I'm doing here? Yeah, hugely. So, obviously, Streets of Rage 2 is the kind of blueprint mm. for this type of game. So, yeah, I mean, when I heard that, you know, around the sort of Amiga days as well, you know, those those soundtracks were just huge for me. And it was a massive influence. And, and also later games like the Wipeout soundtrack, going yeah. back to Jet Set Radio, that was a huge influence as well. I, I really liked soundtracks that really had their own character. Mm. And and in in my words, don't sound video game-ish, if, which is what I mean by that. Is that, is a, is that a word? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> what, what I mean is kind of your I traditional kind of uh, synth leads and melodies and everything. Whereas when Streets of Rage came along and Streets of Rage 2, it was like the music that was in the clubs and what was on the radio, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. in uh, chip form. And yeah. that was like, you know, mind-blowing at the time. And then, of course, the evolution of that, you start getting into Wipeout and when they start licensing real music. Uh, sorry, I don't mean real music as in, you know, to disrespect um video game music because that's not what i mean by that but just licensing uh tracks from current artists yeah and uh and you know like with jet set radio 
that was a uh, soundtrack that it was obviously really inspired by the kind of big beat era, the kind of Norman Cooks, the Chemical Brothers. I mean, when I listen to that soundtrack, I can totally hear that influence all over that. Um, mm. So I really liked when that evolution of video game soundtracks kind of crossed over and started to really experiment and, and, and in, in my eyes, get more interesting. Um, so, yeah, I took influence from all of those soundtracks. Um, I think, what was the other one? Um, uh, Res is a good one. Res has got Yeah, Res, Street Fighter 3. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Was it for, yeah, that, yeah, that was it. Yeah, really sh- went for it uh, with that soundtrack. Yeah. yeah, real departure from Street Fighter 2 and Street Fighter Alpha. Yeah. Yeah, much more. I mean, you've got hip hop, jungle. That's it, yeah. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's all you need. Yeah, that's it. But, uh, I mean, also for me personally, because we were making a game that was nostalgic, it was all set in the 90s, it was UK. For me, it was really important to embrace that era. So in my mind, I kind of set boundaries of like, okay, I want music to be, uh, I want the the years of sort of 1992 up to 1998 to be really big influence for me. And the music that was big in that era was kind of like, you know, jungle, drum and bass, big beat, breakbeat, hip hop, house, techno. Hold on. Where's the happy hardcore? We forgot no, about we didn't put happy hardcore. hardcore. We didn't put happy hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we've got some gab. You, bu- you bumped the CDs. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, oh, what else do we have? Gabber in there. And I, I just wanted to kind of embrace that kind of decade of music. And I thought, you know, this is the perfect opportunity to get that in. It would yeah. add to the kind of nostalgic feel and the authenticity you know just just the overall feel of the game it would work really well with it well all of these games you know have got like a, a backstory you know much of which we didn't really pay much attention to as kids but um <laughs> it's always in there i mean this game being like a love letter to those 90s side-scrolling beat-em-ups mike i mean tell us a bit about final vendetta's story then when is it set where is it set and who are the characters then in the game <laughs> Oh man, uh, it went through about ten rewrites, didn't it? That storyline. Yeah, actually, yeah. I mean, I mean, I had a go, but I'm I'm no writer at all, really. Um, so, I was lucky enough that um, I know a, a, a games journalist, and he's also a developer himself called uh, Brandon Sheffield. So he he took over the writing duties for me, which I'm I'm very thankful for. But it's it's just a classic setup, really, where the uh, the local gang have stoked and kidnapped this girl's sister so claire uh, claire sparks her name is yeah unfortunately for the gang you know claire's a bit of a martial arts expert and she's got two badass friends um you know miller and duke who are you know are gonna help her out so <laughs> so yeah it's it's traditional kind of um video game storyline really yeah uh, very much in a lot in the uh, uh vein of final fight uh, and streets of rage i guess I mean, it, the storyline is almost secondary. Really, it's um, it's just an excuse to go and beat up bad guys to some, you know, really good tunes. <laughs> and this this seems to have been like a real retro beat 'em up revival. You know, recently, you know, Streets of Rage Four, Shredder's Revenge, also this week, and now obviously, you know, Final Vendetta. What do you think draws people to these games? Why do you think people still love this style of game? Yeah, they sort of uh, went off the radar for a long time, really, and. Yeah, it was largely Streets of Rage 4 that's uh, brought them back into the limelight. I mean, I think they disappeared largely because of, of Street Fighter 2. Um, <laughs> I mean, Capcom were very much focused on uh, scrolling beat-em-ups for, you know, for most of the 90s, along with 
Konami and Sega. But yeah, when mm. Street Fighter 2 dropped, you know, everyone, it, there was a massive gold rush almost towards um, versus fighters. Yeah, that's why there's a, a dearth of uh, beat-em-ups on Neo Geo as well. So I think Dot Emu, you know, they're very savvy. Uh, they they know a good license when they see one. And uh, yeah, they realized that I think there was a, a big big gap in the market for a, a great beat-em-up. So uh, yeah, they brought back the Streets of Rage franchise. And uh, yeah, and everyone's like, actually, yeah, <laughs> beat-em-ups are pretty cool and uh, we want more of them. So I think this year alone, there's something like, 22 beat-em-ups coming out or something, something crazy like that oh wow so uh yeah um <laughs> 20 so, yeah. 21 of them are the uh, turtles compilation coming out at the end of the year. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> um, but it's yeah it's really cool to be part of this renaissance and yeah you know i've kind of a, i've just avoided playing any other beat-em-ups really I've, I've i've tried to just go in my own direction um mm. it's, yeah it's very much a love letter to final fight and streets of rage but with some extra touches which i i, I hope fans of the genre will, will find interesting but yeah it's uh, i think great games are timeless really uh mm. so you know i've, I've played streets rage one and two with my daughter and golden axe and we, we have great time with them and, and these games are what 25 30 years old now yeah i think it goes for any genre whether it's a, a metroidvania or a puzzle game a shoot 'em up you know great game mechanics they they don't need to be transfer to you know 3d and ultra high production values uh there's there's still a real demand for for great 2d games and I, I think there always will be and actually the beat 'em up for me it doesn't work in 3d um a, a few people have attempted it but yeah it's it's just one of those genres along with probably the metroidvania which just just functions better in 2d 100 percent, and you know those two genres are probably my two of my favorite genres of all time <laughs> so i love it whenever these games come out and, you know, you mentioned they're playing it with your daughter. Our next question was, how important is you to you to keep these games multiplayer? You know, because it's not something you really see couch co-op anymore. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, th- I think beat-em-ups, probably of all genres, they, they, they're just so much fun with someone else sat next to you. And we did look at the potential of a three or four player, but given the size of the sprites, it was mm. just unfeasible, really. It, it was just too busy. Uh, so, but yeah, I mean, a great two-player beat-em-up you know they, they they just 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 work well um like i said streets of rage one and two still stand up now alien storm golden axe so um yeah it's it's just one of those genres which lends itself to you know being being played with a friend and uh yeah if you're lucky enough to have someone around to play with it's uh it just enhances the experience well Liam, i mean kind of getting back to the the soundtrack i know you're friends with um dance music legends the utah saints who um thanks to you we had on the podcast actually a couple of years ago you hooked us up with that very kindly um and they've obviously been ingrained in the the technology and you know video game scene um for a good couple of decades now as well i mean what's kind of your your relationship with them and how did you hook up with them originally and are they involved in this project have you roped them into it yes um basically uh when i was uh djing sort of in my earlier days we used to get tim uh, to come to Southampton and play in a place called Orange Rooms. And he would sort of come every other Friday and uh, play some gigs. So I kind of got to know him there. And that that was a bit strange because, like, as a kid, I would go in and buy their records. Uh, I remember going into Woolworths when I was, like, 12 or 13 and picking up their first um, sort of releases. Uh, and then, you know, whatever, how many years later, I'm there DJing alongside him. And it was just a bit of a, 
oh, wow, that's that's crazy. But the thing is with Tim and Jez, they're like, I mean, to this day, they're probably two of the nicest people I've met in the music industry. They're just so down to earth. Uh, you know, the, the stuff they've done in the beginning was, as far as I'm concerned, real pioneering. And, you know, they were kind of with that the, the sort of leaders of the electronic kind of movement that, that did really well in the charts. You know, people like them and KLF uh, and a few others were kind of like the people that I always remember sort of pushing uh, dance music to the masses and getting on top of the pops, but their music was still really good. Did they use um, an Atari ST? But they, they used an Atari ST. <laughs> they did use an Atari <laughs> ST. <laughs> yeah. So they wrote good music on the Atari ST. And um, yeah, so I kind of got to know them through then. And as, as my DJ career sort of grew, they would book me for shows. And then I ended up playing um, Beat Herder Festival, which is a, a festival that they, um, they sort of put together the stage up there for one of the one of the stages a stage called the ring um and i remember playing a few times for them alongside people like dj hype and high contrast all these really cool artists and they would always just give me like amazing time slots and um just be like super nice um and then they came i mean they got involved with the game partly because of the show uh and uh, as you know i obviously sort of emailed you Dan and sort of said oh would you like to get these guys on you're interested in sort of having them on um mm. and sort of I didn't realize the the depth of their involvement in the game industry until I heard that podcast that you put out um and it kind of made me think you know we were sort of halfway through doing Vendetta at the time and the soundtrack was coming together and it had a a feel and a sound and a direction and I kind of sort of listened to the podcast that you did with them. And I was like, oh, well, Tim's done an awful lot. I've never sort of chatted to him about that side of things. And then it just sort of clicked and was like, oh, well, we should get them on Final Vendetta because this is, you know, a 90s game. You don't get more bigger than Utah Saints in the 90s. You know, that was their era. And it just kind of made sense to get them involved. So I sort of said to Mike and Matt, would you like to get Utah Saints on? And they were like, yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah. Let's get them on. <laughs> wow. And uh, originally we were just going to get them to do the title music. So when the game starts up and you've got the player one, player two options, that was going to be where their music was. But uh, by this time, we'd kind of had this rough demo that uh, we had in the game. Mike could put it in the game. And when, when you hear something over and over, you, you really get used to it being there. And I think kind of taking it out of the game at that point would have... Um, I think it would have been a bad move. So what we then ended up deciding was sort of let them do and score an entire level. So they ended up doing the docs level and they also did the boss for the docs level. Um, so they had those two tracks done. And then I was kind of listening to the first album at, uh, one night and there was a track on there. I can't remember which one it's called, but it's quite a chilled laid back track. And I just remember thinking, oh, that would be really good for the end of the game, the end credits. So I sort of said to Tim, oh, do you want to do another track? Can you do something like you did with this track you did on your first album? So they wrote that and then we were kind of like, okay, well, let's get them to do one more and they they can then become more of a feature of the game rather than having just one or two tracks. They can sort of uh, be, you know, sort of have a bigger percentage of the soundtrack and it would be more of a feature and uh, more of a, um, a special appearance type thing. Um, so they ended up doing the four tracks for the game. And then we also, 
uh, I got a track from Crafty Cuts, who's a, a DJ that's um, been going for years, and he donated a track for the bonus level. And um, yeah, it kind of went from there, and it just it just kind of fitted the whole feel of the game and having their name on there just, you know, it brings back a lot of memories and a lot of nostalgia for people. So yeah, it just works really well, I think. Yeah. And I think the soundtrack complements the gameplay and the era so well. Um, I mean, are you releasing the, is the soundtrack available separately from the game then? Uh, well, you can get it, uh, you can get it on the special edition and the, what's the collector's? The collector's edition and the super limited edition. Yeah. So they come with the CD, but, uh, it will be appearing on streaming sites, hopefully within the next week. And then uh, we are looking at put it in, uh, putting it out on vinyl in a few months' time. So, Mike, the uh, the game obviously came out over the weekend. What's the initial reaction been like? Actually, surprisingly good. You know, um, I, I get really nervous whenever I release a game because I spend generally about two years on the game and uh, mm. you put it out there and you just hope that people... Some people will find enjoyment in it. So, yeah, I, I was quite surprised, actually. Um, I, I usually <laughs> expect the worst and hope for the best. But, um, yeah, we had really good, uh, really good feedback. Um, I, I think the classic beat-em-up fans, they, they just love it and they totally get it. Um, there's been quite a few people who who've find the game just too hard and... Yeah, I, I totally, you know, totally understand that. It's it's a game that you have to learn. It's something of a a thinking person's beat em up, I would say. So I've I've tried mm. to make it a bit more intelligent than Final Fight and Streets of Rage. Uh, you, you have to very carefully plan your attacks and your movements. So yeah, it will when you go in straight away uh, cold. It it will probably catch you by surprise. But yeah, I mean, I have to. I have to appreciate that there's a lot of gamers out there who, you know, they don't really want that challenge. They want a more relaxed playthrough. So, um, yeah, this, uh, in the last day or two, I've been working on a, like a casual setting for the game. So, so players can just continue indefinitely and just, you know, just play the game as they like. Um, so hopefully that will, uh, you know, keep the, the more uh, casual players and younger players happy. Uh, but yeah, we, we've been really blown away. Obviously, we've, uh, I don't know, some people would say unfortunate, but I would say fortunate enough <laughs> to launch alongside uh, Shredder's Revenge, mm. uh, which, you know, certainly wasn't planned on our side. And I think if anything, they, I don't know, it seems weird that they uh, they launched the day before us. So um, mm. I, I don't know if that's coincidence or what. But <laughs> Final Vendetta was announced four months before, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. Day. Yeah, so, but. No, it's cool. It's if anything, we've we've been sort of tagged along with the hype to some extent. You know, we've been uh, constantly compared to Shredder's Revenge, and I think players realise that we we offer a quite a different experience. Shredder's Revenge, obviously a fantastic game, but it's uh, I think it's probably a, a bit more uh, a bit softer than Final Vendetta. Let's say uh, we're very much uh, you know in the '90s camp, really. Yeah, it takes its inspiration from Final Fight and Streets of Rage. And yeah, Shredder's Revenge is more weapon-based combat. So yeah, I think I think it's we're to- two quite different camps really, but it's it's nice to be compared to it. And we get we've had a lot of nice comments saying, actually, yeah, I, I really I really get what you you guys are doing with Final Vendetta. So uh, yeah, it's it's gone surprisingly well. And and Twitter and Twitch and YouTube has just been. Uh, 
just been crazy over the last few days. You know, I've, I've barely had time to do any any real work. I've just been <laughs> replying to people on social media and uh, getting involved with Twitch streams and all sorts, really. I, I think that timing of um, coming out alongside Treaders Revenge, you know, as accidental as it was, I think, you know, in the amount of people I've seen on Twitter, and, you know, we've been tagged in lots from our listeners as well. Mm. And Joe and I did it as well. We both had like a, a retro beat em up weekend. <laughs> yeah. You know, I stayed up I stayed up Friday night playing Shredder's Revenge, Saturday night playing Final Vendetta. So I think a lot of people, it looks like, did that over the weekend. So the timing probably worked That's, out well. Exactly. I was literally playing Final Vendetta, lying on the couch, playing it on Switch, while my wife watched RuPaul's Drag Race last night. And then we went on Shredder's Revenge together. And I was like, oh God, this feels so much different now. And she went, what, in a bad way? Like, as if, like, she thought I preferred Final Vendetta. And I was like, like, no, it just, they feel like, even though they're both beat-em-ups, they feel completely different. Like, you know, no offense to Shredder's Revenge because I'm enjoying that game as well. But I didn't have to think when I was playing that. <laughs> I was just playing it. Like, whereas Final Vendetta, really got to think about it. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, and... I've really, like I said earlier, I've, I've avoided playing the likes of Streets of Rage 4 and uh, other modern beat-ups like, uh, you know, Fight and Rage, I understand's a, a great mm. game as well. But yeah, I've, I, I do that deliberately to just try and formulate my own sort of take on the genre. And yeah, I, I think a lot of players really enjoy and get what we're, what we're doing. Um, and of course, with it being a Neo Geo title, it has to have a certain feel to it i think and a certain level of difficulty and yeah i, th- I think we've pulled that off and the comparisons with uh shredders of revenge are, are usually quite flattering yeah well the game is out there now obviously available on all the uh major platforms and it's incredible to see that it's doing so well i know that mikey probably still on a, a total high like you said and kind of you know just catching up on everything but ha- have you got plans for your next game then i mean what's kind of in the pipeline for bit that bureau oh yeah <laughs> Yeah, I mean, f- things don't stop here, really. Um, yeah, you kind of, even before I've finished Final Vendetta, I've been working on uh, our next title, which is absolutely huge. And uh, yeah, we've been a- yeah. approached by a-, a great publisher to create a game. How much can I say, Lee? Uh, not much. I <laughs> a-, a game. Based- I think you could tell us everything, personally. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Give me a few drinks and uh, yeah, we'll talk about it. <laughs> no, what can I say? It's it's a game based on a big. I don't know if you can say. No, that. I can't. I can't, you can't say that. that. That's it. A, a, it's going to be a big game. A game based on a big. There you go. That's yeah. what oh wow. A big what? I'll, I'll leave that to your imagination. Um, no, it's it's really exciting for us and a real honour to be involved with this project. And yeah, it's it, it brings with it a lot of pressure uh but also potential and yeah it's it's right up our street and again lee lee's working with us he's he's writing the music for this yeah game which, which again I is a talk about. you can't talk about but it's a, <laughs> yeah it's a dream come true for me so um yeah it's it's going to be a big game and a big game for bitmap bureau i think so yeah. Wonderful, guys. Well, um, we'll have to get you back on when you can talk about it to uh, yeah. t- tell us more when you can. Oh. Um, but in the meantime, I mean, everyone needs to go and play Final Vendetta. You know, if they, if they haven't bought it yet, um, perfect for the weekend to play. So obviously I'll, uh, I'll link up all the details in our show notes as well. Uh, it's always a pleasure to catch up with you guys. So thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing a few of your stories about the game. Nice one. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us, guys. The underground. The underground.